0: You are listening to the podcast in conversation with IPR and competition law. Welcome to this very special episode hosted in collaboration with Extra Cover Sports Law Blog. I am Aditya Trivedi, founder and host of this podcast. And you are listening to India's first competition law podcast, widely listened in more than 47 countries. We have Ms. T.L. Taylor with us and we will be discussing esports. Before that, I would like you to introduce my co-host Thananjay all of you
1: Dhananjay, on to you hello everyone i am dhananjay Dhonchak and i am the student managerial editor at extra cover sports law blog extra cover is the first sports law blog of india it was founded with the objective of providing a platform for discussion on recent developments in the field of sports law i am currently reading law at Nalsar university hyderabad i have cultivated an interest in sports law through various publications and close working with practitioners in the field my primary area of research has been sports governance and its implications for human rights. I am excited to co-host this podcast and I hand over to Aditya to introduce our guest
0: today. Thank you, Dhananjay. So today we have Ms. T. L. Taylor with us and we'll be discussing eSports, growth of eSports industry opportunities and governance challenges. T. L. Taylor is Professor of Comparative Media Studies at MIT and co-founder of N.E.K.E. An organization dedicated to supporting and developing fair and inclusive esports. She is a qualitative sociologist who has focused on internet and game studies for over two decades and even more than that. Dr. Taylor's research explores the interrelations between culture and technology in online leisure environments. Her book about game live streaming, Watch Me Play Twitch, and the Rise of Game Live Streaming is the first of its kind to chronicle the emerging media space of online game broadcasting. She is also the author of Raising the Stakes, Esports and the Professionalization of Computer Gaming, which explores the rise of esports, and also Play Between Worlds, Exploring Online Game Culture, which is an ethnography of the massively multiplayer online game EverQuest. Thank you, ma'am, for joining us. A warm welcome to you.
2: Thanks, it's really great to be here.
0: Ms. Taylor, I would like you to speak on like what led to your interest. I would like to ask, what led to your interest to merge towards researching the culture of gaming and online communities, in particular esports and live streaming?
2: Oh, it's a it's a it's a fun and uh, question for me. Uh, when I started looking at internet culture in the nineteen nineties, I was actually mostly focused on early virtual worlds it's kind of funny because now of course the metaverse has come back around but when i was spending my time in early virtual worlds and a, a number of the people i was working with researching you know in the field work i was doing started playing a game called everquest <laughs> and um i was not a particularly large big gamer at the time but it's, you know as an ethnographer what what we often do is we kind of follow we follow the the people where they lead us and once I got to EverQuest and started hanging out there, I realized, oh, there was a fantastic research project just waiting. and that was that was in 1999. It was before game studies really took off, so I was I was really fortunate. Um, es- the eSports project really sprung out of that project because one of the things I studied in that early MMO was what were called at the time power gamers. We now often call them min maxers. People who are very instrumentally focused on their play would kind of reverse engineer systems to better understand them. Um, I often think of these as the type of people who will fail and fail again till they till they get it, and, which is not me. <laughs> um, so I was studying those people. I wrote a chapter about them in that book, and then in 2003, when I started hearing about esports, I thought, "Oh, this this sounds a lot like." Kind of the power gamer temperament I was used to in MMOs. So, I'll just say quickly: I, I went to my first esports event in 2003. I was living in Denmark at the time, and it was at a drafty warehouse on the outskirts, you know, in, in a small town called Aarhus. And I went there because I thought, oh, I'll talk to some players because this seems sort of interesting. And when I was there, there was a guy in a in a in a suit, <laughs> this very business looking guy amidst all of these very young gamers in this you know ramshackle warehouse and so of course i went up to him and was like who are you and what are you doing here and just tell me about yourself and he was a team owner and that was the minute i realized oh wait this is not just about players working towards a professional competitive identity it's the whole apparatus of business and organizations and institutions that really have to also be present to have an esports scene. So that that's what started. That's what started that that very long journey into esports.
0: That's very interesting to know about uh, your journey and your interest. Before Dhananjay asks you about your organization any key, I would also like you to ask, as we all know, you are a world famous sociologist my question would be what is the sociological impact of esports on youth and how can the negative impact if any be negated?
2: yeah so i think one of the most profound changes with esports has in some ways come with the rise of live streaming because you know esports esports has been around actually since the arcade era in some sense if you think of competitive gaming so People are always interested in competitive gaming. The formalization of that is what I think of as esports, when you kind of take that competitive milieu and you formalize it, you set up tournaments. So that that has a very long history that predates personal computers. Um, The thing that's profoundly changed though is that live streaming amplified, accelerated and really made accessible what was otherwise a somewhat niche subculture and it popularized it so i think one of the most profound impacts for i would say not just young people but but adults all sorts of folks is that esports is actually now really easy to access um, it used to be quite hard to be an esports player you had to find specialist websites or download files, special files or videos now it's very accessible you can go on sites like twitch and other live streaming sites and see it so I think the upshot of that has been that it has also become an aspirational space for a lot of folks. People often want to be competitive esports players, where they're inspired by tremendously talented esports players. Um, the, the I think downside of that it's not unlike the downside of aspiring to be any kind of sports athlete. There are very few that make it. <laughs> it is a and it's a very very precarious uh, path, and it's there's it requires tremendous sacrifice. So I think the downside is is it's not a it's not a kind of fixable downside. It's that it's such a powerful aspirational path, but people often don't realize how few make it. It's a little bit like say you want to be a star in the NBA or say you want to make it to the World Cup. (laughs) Um, That's a really narrow handful of people who will make it.
1: Thank you for that insight, Professor Taylor. Since you mentioned live streaming platforms and how it has helped project esports as this aspirational value, I guess my question is that, although we all recognize that live streaming platforms have enhanced and can enhance the growth of esports, how can these platforms be effectively managed and governed so as to maintain a balance in the ecosystem? Because I imagine there are some governance challenges with regards to these proliferating live streaming platforms.
2: Yeah, it's such a great question. Yeah, I think I really see the challenges that live streaming platforms face as not dissimilar from our larger conversations we're having about the role of social media writ large in our lives. Uh, I think platform companies. So I'm not now. I'm now speaking generally. Platform companies have tended to want to uh, build on and and monetize and benefit from the lively engagement of users and the the kind of creative work users do and the conversational community work. But they've also not attended enough to the community management and governance issue. And that's, you know, I would say particularly acute right now when we look at what's happening with a platform like Twitter. So live streaming platforms face similar challenges because they're bringing people together, they're giving them the tools to create not just content, but community and interactions. Um, I would say, you know, I don't want to be too biased. I Full disclosure, I, I serve on Twitch's Safety Advisory Council, but I do think Twitch has tried to confront this head on in some really creative ways. And I think one of the things this means is it's a range of policies um, and infrastructures, sort of technical infrastructures and also human labor infrastructures. So, you know, if you are broadcasting at a site like Twitch, you're doing things like setting up the rules and moderation and governance for your particular channel, but you also being on twitch have access to their tools and have to abide by their terms so it's a complicated mix i'll put it this way with esports so i think it's important to distinguish from there's esports broadcasting which is tournament broadcasting and i think of that as kind of recreating the stadium in a digital milieu so that's one branch we could talk about the other branch are esports professionals players or team members or, you know, other ancillary doing streaming, the tournament environment, the streaming environment for tournaments has to be as attentive to governance as the individual channels, in my opinion, because in the same way, if you go to a sports event and you go to a stadium, you know, even (laughs) stadiums handle it different ways, but there actually are kind of terms of use, I'm doing air quotes now, terms of use for stadiums. Like if you go to a stadium, there's certain behaviors that are allowed and some that aren't. And you can seek help at a stadium. I mean, I don't know how it is in India, but here in the US there are some stadiums that actually let you privately text to request help if something's happening. I think attending to the fact that you're bringing together thousands of people in a real time environment with a lot of energy, enthusiasm, and potential for things to go really good and really bad is something eSports tournament organizers have to deal with. Uh, On the individual and sort of organizational streaming side, same rules apply, but with a different level of granularity. Um, So for example, tournaments need to understand that when they're doing a live stream, they also have to build in, formally, moderators. They have to hire people. <laughs> they should hire be hiring people who are going to manage that chat space. In the individual streaming, it's the same thing. You have to be paying attention to what are the, the rules and practices you've set up on your channel, how are you managing user interaction and behavior, both for the safety of your players, but the safety of the members of, of the community. Um, there's just a scale difference between the two of them, you know, tens of thousands of people chatting at once versus, you know, maybe a couple hundred or thousand. But attending to it is key. It, it, it can't be sort of seen as a, a, oh, if we get to it, the extra thing. It's core to managing the
0: space. Thank you so much for your insights and also your observations relating to the governance issues that are related to eSports, the live streaming, the things we discussed. I want to ask you, do you think that interactive entertainment platforms play a very important role, significant role in the development of eSports?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, depending on what we mean by interactive platforms, so I would say, you know, one of (laughs) There are very few what I think of as universals I will, I will make about life online. <laughs> the specificities of different platforms and different communities matter tremendously. But one of the few things I will say is that in my experience, all online communities are really good at finding the variety of platforms and sites and tools that help them build and manage the kind of community they want to be, and the, you know a, the simplest example of that is you know you play a game, but you also have the Discord server open, <laughs> and you're referring to a third-party website to for tips and tricks. Um, so it's the same case with esports. You know there is the game that people are competing around and playing, but then there's all of the other platforms and sites that get deployed to make that community thrive. And so the range of those is really important. Again, you know, from Discord to websites to as I as I mentioned, live streaming, I would say, you know, live streaming has been one of the most profound accelerators for popularizing esports and also changing and shaping the way esports does things. So absolutely
1: Thank you for that uh, insight professor taylor and i think one thing that stood out for me was uh, the complex range of factors which go into popularizing esports like you mentioned that a range of websites like discord which play a very crucial role in enhan- enhancing the popularity of the sport and my question on that is that because of these range of factors which are absent in let's say a sport like football Wherein you're not so much dependent on these independent sites like Twitch and Discord to make the sport a commercial success. How do you think governance is also, governance in esports is also tweaked to uh, take account of that reality? Because, for instance, like, yeah, please go on.
2: No, 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 give me your example, please. Sorry.
1: (laughs) No, like, for instance, like if I, as a fan, see something wrong in, let's say, football, A lot of times I can attribute responsibility on that to either the club owner or the a particular league or let's say FIFA whereas with esports when there are such a range of factors involved independent websites and independent companies involved who do I attribute that responsibility of governance to
2: yeah it's it's such an interesting question and and it is i th- i would say so profoundly shifting even in just the last few decades because you know if you think of esports really coming out of grassroots communities who are basically passionate fans often former players who who really just wanted to build and support their scene that that uh, th- the gap between the folks who were watching and who were fans and the actual people who were running the tournaments was very narrow i mean People often had close relationships with each other. And as you point out, there was this whole infrastructure of communication uh, on the web, for example, or in specialized forums. I mean, I remember, this is now many years ago, but um, seeing really lively debates around rule sets at, for example, you know, the world cyber games. So it's a great point. And, and the contrasts and comparisons to traditional mm-hmm. sports, I think are fascinating because in so many ways the governance structures of traditional sports not all but the big ticket ones we pay a lot of attention to they are so formalized and top down it's it's often quite hard for fans to have a lot of pushback sometimes it happens but it's often quite hard i mean esports is in a funny place i think we're between models we have both models still operating esports the esports landscape is still filled with smaller tournaments, tournaments that are driven by a passionate subculture of fans. So there's those. There's also big uh, tournaments that are run by game developers themselves, which is again one of the biggest historic changes. You know, pre-Twitch, largely game developers did not care about esports. because they didn't see it as a marketing tool they just it was off to the side and that has profoundly changed so we have now tournaments that are really governed and owned by major corporations and there's also been increasing consolidation amongst game development companies and esports so i think it's tricky i think we're in between spaces and in fact just in the last week or so if you've been following you know nintendo has come out and um, there's a big smash tournament that's not gonna happen. Nintendo's one of the companies that most, I would say, it severely regulates what's happening in eSports and competition. And that tournament has basically been shut down because of the regulation issues. For me, this is an ongoing, I was gonna say problem, but I'll, I'll say struggle. Because I do think that the The emergent nature of esports, the way esports are fundamentally around communities taking up a formal game title and transforming it in a really profound way, is something that I don't think the top-down mechanisms can quite handle. Um, so I don't know where it's going to go in the future, but I think we're in this moment where we're seeing a real mix, you know, there, the, the a future in which a future, which perhaps looks a little FIFA like with some entities and at the same moment, um, all of these kind of grassroots community-based, and I would say just to add to the mix, one last quick thing, uh, the national context for all of these. Because esports doesn't live in a single unified global context. It does in the sense that there may be titles that are played in many countries, but the specific context of an esports scene is heavily reliant on the national context in which it sits. So, that is, I would say, another really important factor that always has to be thought about.
1: So, would you say that? this makes esports governance more democratic in terms of like there are top-down elements but at the end of the day the fan engagement with the governance of the sport is more sort of concrete compared to other more traditional sports and my sort of second part of the question is that is it possible to sustain this kind of democratic model given the need to scale and commercialize the sport more and more oh
2: it's such a good question I don't know that I would use quite the language of democracy because I think that may this is tricky because there there may be some scenes in which we're not just talking about fan participation but fans have a, a actually have a meaningful voice right so you know there's participation and then there's democracy and I sort of feel like democracy is also speaking to having some power in the mix, like that fans may have some power. And I think that's tricky. Again, I think there are some scenes where the line between the people who are actually involved in playing the tournament, organizing it, all of this, the line between them and audience is so thin, they actually have meaningful power. And those are often, I think, smaller, increasingly those are smaller scenes, niche scenes. I think what we more have are forms of audience participation that are, as I think you're pointing to perhaps, being heavily commodified and commercialized. And they're looking a lot more like traditional sports fandom. And increasingly, the organizational apparatus on the esports side is also increasingly looking like traditional, not just media, but a media entertainment property. And then there, you know, the language of democracy, I think, doesn't actually work. At, at the most we're talking about is kind of active participatory audiences who maybe in particular moments are pushing back and speaking up and speaking out if things happen that they're not happy with. But it's, I would say, a much more constrained model of participation than perhaps we had in the past.
0: Right. Thank you, Professor, for your observations, critical observations, and very interesting uh, conversation going on. And I would like to ask more about live streaming. Like, what's the reason behind the rise of game live streaming and how does it impact our understanding of media and audiences? Mm,
2: Yeah, Uh, the rise of it is is fascinating. I mean, in my book, uh watch me play which just for what it's worth people there's a free creative commons copy of that book so people don't need to buy it if they're interested in the history of twitch and the rise of live streaming if if they just go to watchmeplay.cc there's a free creative commons version there so one of the things i trace out in that book is you know live streaming comes out of a really complex mix of technologies and practices that weren't just about games you know there's a long history on the internet of trying to do broadcasting you know webcams have been around for decades people have tried to do life casting right where they're just kind of glimpses of their lives and in fact twitch tv originated was first called justin tv and justin tv was life casting it was just sharing your daily life what are you up to it was all that really mundane non-gaming stuff and one of the things that uh the the executives at the time noticed was gaming was really popular and they really began to think like oh what if we take gaming seriously as a content, a form of content. Now, of course, if you spend time on Twitch now, the interesting thing is Twitch hosts a lot of non-gaming content as well. So it's a little bit like the full circle of of content creation. Um, So that's one trajectory. The other thing I think is important for folks to realize is that while eSports really now leverages Twitch in particular, eSports also had been for a very long time Experimenting and innovating with all kinds of forms of broadcast. Some of the earliest ones were audio broadcasts, where people were using early, you know, real player or Winamp to actually just do audio broadcasts of esports. And in fact, I have in my book, I have a really terrific picture I took many years ago at a dream hack of, of a very well known and popular uh, esports commentator, Paul Chalonier Red Eye, who was just doing audio streaming from the venue. Um, but eSports producers, media producers, have long been taking pretty much whatever AV equipment they could get at hand to try to produce video, to try to do live video. One of the most important um, changes around this is that it used to be quite expensive to do video. So any tournament organizer was having to pay for all of that data that was flowing. and. I remember one telling me at one point, you know, they saw that they were getting huge numbers to watch this event they were producing and they were simultaneously panicked because they knew the data costs were going to be so high. So punchline there when you get a site like Twitch, which is carrying the data load, which is increasingly providing the technical facility and tools that changes everything. So the rise of live streaming, as I mentioned before, has just been absolutely pivotal for esports. And I'll just say one last thing on this: is when I, you know, when I did my my when I wrote my book on esports, that book came as what I think of as the second wave of esports. The research was done between about 2003 and 2011. At the time, the people I was interviewing and spending a lot of time with. We're really thinking and and aiming for television. It was this television dream. If we can just get on television, we're gonna find our audiences, we're gonna explode. And I will say one of the most striking things to me is when I started the the live streaming project is that narrative radically changed Um, because they began to say, yeah, I mean, if we're on television, that's great, but actually (laughs) live streaming is the place where we found our audience it's, it makes sense in a kind of native way to who we are as a community. We can do a lot more. Um, and that live streaming really, you know, the attention shifted maybe too dramatic because, you know, if you tell any esports tournament organizer they're going to be on television, they're probably still going to be excited. <laughs> but live streaming actually became the media outlet that was really the huge amplifier for, for esports.
1: Right. Uh, yeah, I think this is, uh, in a way, that has been more liberating for participants as well, uh, You, as you alluded to it, towards it. So, I guess my next question, since you uh, explained about your background as an ethnographer, my question would be that, do you think there's any difference in the sociological experience of esports participants from the West and those from the Global South? Or is it more egalitarian in a way?
2: Mm, it's a great question. So it's a little—I have to say—it's a little out of my lane in the sense that I, I don't really have a lot of good empirical data on esports in the global south. Uh, other than I will give you two things I will say. So um, I, when I've when I've been lucky enough to, you know, be outside of the U.S. and traveling and meeting people who are working on esports. I certainly see an enthous- a, you know, a real enthusiasm for esports in non-US/EU contexts. I mean, uh, I was really fortunate a number of years ago to actually come to India. And I was speaking at an event. I don't know if it still happens, called the Coalition, and I was in uh, Delhi, New Delhi and spent a day hanging out with the folks who were trying to build eSports at the time. This was now probably maybe even six or seven years ago. And it was wonderful and it was really exciting. It reminded me a lot of the earliest days of eSports in in Europe, for example, where you just had people who were really passionate and trying to build the scene from the ground up. Uh, but I was also struck by, again, how you know the national contexts are profoundly important. So at the time, and I don't know how this is, if if and how this has changed, but it was really clear, you know, there wasn't an internet infrastructure in the same way as in other places. So mobile phones were more important. Um, having um, game cafes that were going to be places to host tournaments and people live streaming, that having these sort of centralized locations that had really good internet tied to a PC, those were more important. So I think these national infrastructures, also the national legal context. I'll give you an, an example, not from the global south, but when I did my my esports work, um, talking to the the German organizers. You know, the folks in Germany were very attuned to the political and legislative context that they had to operate in, that was governing. What kinds of games could be played? So all of those specificities really matter. So I guess what I want to say is, I, I again, I don't have enough empirical data to speak in a really grounded way, but I have traveled enough. I spent, t- you know, I spent time in China to see how mobile technology is shaping what esports looks like there. To know that the esports enthusiasm is global. <laughs> um, often the titles are global. Um, but organizers have to deal with their national contexts, the practices and preferences of their local communities. And that means there is always gonna be some variation to what esports looks like on the ground, which I kind of think is great. I mean, I'm not particularly interested in a world in which esports, we just sort of have the cookie cutter esports globally. I think the diversity, whether it's of titles or practices or platforms, that's actually pretty cool. <laughs> and it and it gives us a a much more interesting future. So I'm not sure if I answered your question. Enthusiasm is there globally. What that looks like specifically really matters in the national context.
0: Yes, right, Professor. Thank you for your observation, also your response. Since we also podcast, uh, which involves intellectual property rights, even a title is in conversation with IPR and competition law. So, we understand the different competitive sectors, and esports is one of them. And I am very curious to know about intellectual property rights issues here. So, gaming has evolved a lot with the rise of social media. Can these changes challenge the meaning of ownership? And intellectual property and open the way to new forms of creativity what do you think
2: i love this question (laughs) um and i love it in part because i'm a little sad because i'm not sure many people are are still asking um i don't know asking provocative questions of intellectual property i a little a little bit feel like It's almost become a settled issue and and I don't think it is. So I will say that the intellectual property questions around gaming have long interested me. I would, in each of my books, there is always a consideration of intellectual property. And that is because in in large part, I argue that gaming experiences are not, they are co-created amongst many different actors, but of course, primarily the player and the text. And I think the models of intellectual property and the, and the understandings of authorship around games have been way too narrowly construed as, you know, there's a game developer and they hand off the game and we consume it and walk away. And that's just empirically not how it works on the ground. And so one of the things I often trace out in my work are the much more complex assemblages of of co-creation that happen around game properties. And I think game developers often um, try to have their cake and eat it too. You know, back in the old MMO days, you know, game developers would say like, come in, live in this world, you know, kind of make it your own, but wait, wait, wait! don't try to go sell that character on eBay, we own it. <laughs> and, and players are sort of like, wait, but you told me, <laughs> come live in this world, make it my own, and, and now you're drawing the line. And that thread of that tension between game developers really wanting to say, in the end, it's ours, full stop, which is in part what's driving the, the recent Nintendo Smash um, contention, and what i see as the transformative work players communities and organizations do that must be recognized so you know within the u.s context one of the you know and this is tricky because of course intellectual property law always has its, its shaded differently in in different places but in the u.s one of the things that we at least have some grounding to think about is transformative work Work that really creates new cultural meaning, that alters in some meaningful way the original text or the original IP. And I think when you look at the work of eSports, when you look at a lot of the work that's happening in live streams, you see transformative work in action. So I have long argued that very narrow, conservative formulations of intellectual property, which say the game developer owns everything, they get the final say on everything, and if they don't like your esport, they can essentially take the ball and send you all home is insufficient. Um, the reason I love the question is that that you're you know, keeping that question on the front burners is important because if we don't keep pushing and asking it, we really do risk all so many of our leisure spaces, our digital leisure leisure spaces, our digital sports spaces, our digital cultural spaces, being wholly captured by a handful of big corporations that are gonna feel like they're the ones who get to say how it's gonna work. And I just, I don't think that matches reality. We live in a moment in which we are constantly, because we are social cultural creatures, We are constantly co-constructing our worlds with a lot of commercial entities, and we need better, more progressive, intellectual property regimes that understand that.
1: Thank you for that insight, Professor Taylor. I'll ask the last question of our session. Uh, It is slightly a more uh, generic question to end the session. And I just want you to reflect on how do you think that esports Act as a lens for looking at the technological practices that are reshaping human interaction as this increasingly digital culture.
2: Mm, yeah, it's it's a fun it's a fun question. So I, there's often a couple of ways I think about this. You know, esports is at its heart this really lovely mix of kind of human and non-human actors, computation and human action, kind of woven together in this and you know in its best moments this really lovely way to produce all of this kind of emergent stuff um so i think you know this of course in some ways goes to the heart of our contemporary experience we we, we live our lives flowing between you know all of these socio-technical apparatuses and you know we just we kind of weave all this stuff together um One thing I say, though, often when I when I my follow up to that is often that's actually not so novel and it's not even novel in traditional sports. If you look at traditional sports, traditional sports are is also a place where we see really complex human and technical interweaving, whether that's and of course, traditional sports often regulates that stuff, too, because they recognize it. they may not use the same language we do in digital gaming or when we're thinking about social media but it is the same thing at work that you know so i think about the ways you know swimsuit technology gets regulated in the olympics or you know when 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 fifa there's moments where has introduced a new ball and the ball technology is itself debated or the kind of uh, performance training that's so tied up with technological systems. Um, and in our daily lives, we also have that same technological mix, you know, hearing aids. Uh, you, you could even think about the technology of pharmaceuticals. So to me, esports is playing with that technology human interweaving in a way that it sometimes looks distinct because it's just so like, wow, you know, people often say, like, Wait, you're saying there are people who are competing in games and you're like, yes, (laughs) but we are also very good at weaving our lives together with computation in really complex ways. So on the one hand, it looks very special. On the other hand, it is simply a part of our human experience in a lot of ways.
0: Thank you so much, Professor Taylor, for your experience sharing and also for this last question. We had a lot of generic questions as well, but very fun questions, nicely framed by our team. And I, from this podcast, I thank all our team members of both the podcast as well as the Sports Law Blog. I thank you again for your uh, acceptance of this uh, this podcast and for your precious time. We are really honoured to host you. And this has been an engaging, interesting, insightful, very innovative, I would say, conversation, shaping a lot of jurisprudential issues as well for us lawyers, like I would be a regulatory competition lawyer, and then would be a sports lawyer, so if we are in the industry, we now have a lot of insights from you, the authority on esports, what I would like to call and we are very grateful to host you and looking forward to more such conversations in future that we can have the opportunity to host you and this particular podcast will be out soon and i hope that a lot of people would love it and they'll send their valuable feedback thank you so much professor Your concluding remarks
2: Thank you. I I really enjoyed it. I love the questions you're all asking. And I will say I it's been fun to from a distance watch also esports developing and unfold in India. And so I just really excited. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really, really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thank you so much, Professor. We'll send you the details of the podcast poster and also the relevant links. It will be live on apple podcast google podcast and spotify by this sunday and we'll email you the details and uh, we would be honored if you could also share from your social media as well and we'll tag you and we'll be honored to receive feedback from you of the recorded session and also hoping that the whole sports community and regulatory community around the globe legal community as well like this particular session thank you so much have a great day thank you so Thanks much you professor too.